the Wilmington story might get lost out there in translation, especially when you look at, you know, things like business development or company recruitment. What kind of story are we telling about Southeastern North Carolina and what kind of story should we be talking about for Southeastern North Carolina? I think that um, Wilmington is uniquely poised with a lot of natural resources, the Atlantic Ocean, mm -hmm. Cape Fear River, Brunswick River, News River, all the tributaries and mm -hmm. all the coastal lands that we have here. And I think that there is a desire for people to have this work-life balance, but I think that people who are running companies understand that it's really hard to attract and maintain and retain really good talent. And I think if you can talk about the story of how you can bring clean industry, clean technology, clean business to Southeastern North Carolina and start to build those market segments that people are gonna to start to cluster around. I think that's the story that we need to start telling with a focus on sustainability and environmental sustainability, economic sustainability, those types of things. There's a lot of conversations that need to happen for those kind of big initiatives to kind of gain traction across uh, multiple player bases. Time for another episode of the Cold Star Project, the podcast about the unexpected challenges of scaling businesses. And I've got a guest here We've been waiting to talk for some time, had some back and forth, so it's cool to have him here. It's right before Christmas, too, when we're recording this, so I appreciate you being here. My guest Merry is Christmas. Yes, thank you, and to our uh, viewers and listeners. Happy holidays. Uh, <laughs> so it's Sean Allen, and uh, Sean is currently the Vice President of New Product Business Development at uh, the Ability Network, and we'll get into that a little bit. It's uh, healthcare compliance kind of organization but he's also the founder of C creatively consultancy and he's from the town that I've been in nine out of the last ten years Wilmington North Carolina so the C in front is the ocean C S C A creatively consultancy and we I got uh, recommended to talk to you Sean because I was digging into um, Tech Mountain which is a tech incubator co-working space in Wilmington uh, for those of you who've watched my interviews with uh, Derek Schmidt, he is a guy at, uh, at um, Tech Mountain and also uh, one or two other folks that, that I ran into there. And the neat thing is, Sean, I was able to be in the, the um, we actually shot at Tech Mountain in one of the oh, boardrooms for these. So that was pretty neat. So you spent four years as a senior director, uh, among other roles, of innovation at Castle Branch, which is, the, I believe, the banking organization that owns Tech Mountain. Castle Branch is a compliance management right. company. Okay. They do um, criminal background checks, um, drug tests, immunization tracking, those types of things. And they have a cool. um, specific niche in the healthcare industry, working with allied health professionals. Um, so you think rad techs, medical assistants, nurses, those types of things, um, to do their compliance for when they go into their clinical rotation. Okay, good deal. So, so really I wanted you on uh, mostly, I mean, for for our local southeast North Carolina Great. folks who watch and listen, but I guess other folks will get value out of this because you have some community management experience with Tech Mountain, and um, that that had quite some energy going for it for a while. It was kind of neat because I got here in 2009, was allowed to work in the U.S. in 2010, and there was nothing. <laughs> there was just nothing like that, you know, and, and the energy level in the town was low and the recession was on. And so I watched it come up and, and uh, Tech Mountain appeared and, and it has become a, a hub of innovation in that. So tell us about what the state of, uh, of business development is like in Southeast North Carolina today. 
Yeah, I think it's pretty young still. Um, you know, having had the pleasure of being able to travel to innovative ecosystems across the United States and then, um, you know, seeing all the good that, you know, like when an ecosystem is put together properly, um, all of the good things that kind of flourish out of that. Um, I think Wilmington is super young in that process. Um, I think, you know, there's so many different players that need to come together in order for like an innovative ecosystem to, to kind of kick off and actually start churning out, you know, profitable businesses. You know, I think it's not just the public sector, like government, um, you know, you have your government agencies, you have your educational agencies that need to play into that. Um, your chamber that needs to have some work involved in it. Um, comp, um, you know, publicly traded or privately held companies have um, a responsibility in that area. And then, you know, the um, entrepreneurs themselves have an area. Um, I would say right now that Wilmington has a lot of people who um, are in that entrepreneurial mindset, but I don't think that they are clustered around any one kind of market segment. So I feel like it's very, um, fragmented, so yeah. to speak. Um, there's a couple areas that are kind of taking off, and I, I like those uh, areas. I think right now the financial technology area and what Live Oak Bank has done in that area, um, spinning out companies like Encino, which will eventually spin out other companies um, as they are successful and um, reach their ultimate goals. Uh, but, you know, I don't really see a lot of other areas around those types of like market verticals like financial technology. I think I see a couple of areas that have um, a great bit of potential. Um, and I just don't know if we as an organizational unit, meaning the community of southeastern North Carolina, have actually recognized that and are able to capitalize on it. Okay. So what startup support do you see available in, in the area? Or is there any or is it like kind of good luck you're on your own? Well, number one, there's some really fantastic entrepreneurs in the area that have been successful. So mm -hmm. um, if you think about like, you know, the Chip Mayhans and the um, George Taylors of the world, they're, they're here, they're available. Um, you know, there's a host of C-level um, retired executives that live in the area. Mm -hmm. Most of them have come here for um, retirement purposes or family purposes or things like that. So, you know, I think those are the resources that are, um, you know, available to people that are kind of out there. But for the most part, entrepreneurs are sort of on their own here. Um, and it takes a connector. Um, I think, you know, Jim Roberts with Whale and New has done a good job of connecting um, people throughout the state, um, but really has struggled, like most of the people, to bring those resources back into southeastern North Carolina. Um, Diane Durant over at the CIE is doing a fantastic job and maintains mm -hmm. a good um, <laughs> a good arsenal or bullpen of um, mentors for companies. So I think that's pretty fantastic. Um, I think, you know, that, um, you know, we have the normal resources that are available to a lot of different companies like a small business technology development center, SBA is here. Um, so there's a bunch of activity for you to get involved with if you want to. Um, but I think one of the things that I see that's majorly missing is those big industry, you know, kind of um, clusters that are here in the area that are saying, you know, if you look at like outside Indianapolis or outside um, Detroit, when Detroit when the car industry was huge, right? All of a sudden you had this proliferation of other industrial type of um, startups, whether it was for seatbelt technology or radio technology in a vehicle or whatever they are. And those things built around sort of like that um, 
automotive industry. If you look up just up the road to Greenville, South Carolina, you'll mm. see BMW and then Michelin, right? So like those big kinds of things are happening, but they're around in the, like big industry clusters. Okay. And the closest thing, yeah, Wilmington's got to that is maybe GE, you know, maybe some be, pharmaceutical. Yeah. yeah, I think some pharmaceutical. We have had a pretty good successful run of some pharmaceutical businesses. I don't mm -hmm. think that they've been like what I would consider a true startup in terms of repeatable, scalable business mm -hmm. model. I see a lot of really good service-based companies coming out of that area. Um, you know, pharmaceutical, you know, um, you know, marketing or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. and, and then those types of things are services based that like another pharmaceutical company can plug into and utilize it as a third party resource for them. So, um, but I don't necessarily see like that, like game changing, disruptive, like kind of company coming through and changing the, um, mm -hmm. the landscape of Wilmington right now. But, you know, the thing is, is that we do have a number of, um, really great assets. So, you know, you talked about the pharmaceuticals, PPD is obviously what comes mm -hmm. to mind here. Um, we do have GE, which is big. Um, and then, you know, there's also Corning, which makes the majority of the world's fiber optics here mm -hmm. and then another plant here in North Carolina and the Gorilla Glass, which, you know, I'm utilizing right now on my iPhone. So all that stuff is, um, has opportunity to come from these areas. Um, you know, we also have a pretty robust state port system. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty interested. You know, we see some companies around that, like Megacorp Logistics and things of that nature that come in and kind of help, um, you know, coordinate the transfer of goods across the globe. So I think that there's um, other areas that are ripe for um, kind of those industry clusters, so to speak. Okay. And you mentioned the CIA, the Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship at UNCW. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's an area that's been pretty good. I, I've seen a few directors go through there. Um, mm. There's a fellow named Jonathan a while ago who got sucked up by the banking industry, unfortunately, and he was pretty good. Uh, well, yeah, but see, yeah. that's the way it works, yeah. right? Like yeah. the, the university is supposed to be your, um, your fountain of talent and mm -hmm. your fountain of intellectual property. And Jonathan was both of those things in one and ended up going again to the spin out out of Live Oak Bank, which is now mm -hmm. in Sino, which I think will eventually spin out. Um, so I think that those things are good for our area and our industry. Um, you know, I'm really interested before I left um, Technon when we started a uh, relationship with New Hanover Regional Medical Center, their mm -hmm. innovation center, um, you know, for good or for bad, <laughs> whatever the public thinks about the um, hospital's kind of trajectory where they are, whether the, the county owns them or whether they um, sell to a private organization. Um, I think that they're doing the right thing and laying the foundation for um, innovation and um, looking outside the normal four walls of the regular hospital system to solve some of these major issues in healthcare. And I think you know, if they can kind of figure out how they can support that, um, you know, one of the biggest things that's missing here in Southeastern North Carolina for these startup organizations is access to capital, um, mm -hmm. you know. But I think, you know, once you have good uh, people running good companies that solve a really true industry need and pain point that's um, identified in the marketplace, then I think the capital will follow that, so. Okay. I, I appreciate your frankness in that because you're echoing some of the ideas that I've had for a while and, and I've gone, is it just me? <laughs> you know, am I being kind of a, a Debbie Downer about this area? But, uh, you know, I mean, there is, there is good stuff going on, but there are missing chunks, as you pointed out, that I'm glad to hear well, you comment about. 
you know, and it's not anything negative about yeah. the area. It's just young and nascent. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, like look at Austin, Texas. Now it's mm -hmm. probably one of the biggest, you know, invested in areas or even like a Boulder, Colorado or what have yeah. you. Um, right. It just takes time for, you know, the idea of new company development to coalesce around certain industry segments. Mm -hmm. And then once that happens, then the financial capital will follow through. Right. Yeah. And there has been a huge increase in, um, in the size, I think, of UNCW and the number of students and student housing uh, in the yep. 10 years that I've been in this area that this city has changed quite a bit. For sure. Let's see. Something I noticed about your education, which was interesting, was you got a post-degree certificate in responsible board governance, uh, which mm -hmm. is unusual. And I, I like that. Uh, then you had some experience on the Wilmington Chamber of Commerce uh, member board of directors for a couple of years. Was that certificate helpful there? What kind of experience did you have with it? Well, um, the Chamber of Commerce was a fantastic board. That was one of the best run boards I've ever been on. Um, I actually got that supposed degree certificate in responsible board governance because I was a um, board of director for an international nonprofit organization mm -hmm. called Surfrider Foundation, um, which, you know, I ran the local chapter for, uh, oh man, since a million years, <laughs> 1997 <laughs> to 2014. So, you know, that was a long time. Um, and that organization has got strength now and has continued to grow and um, has been pretty influential in things like, you know, public policy. I mean, you know, the fact that we have a line item in our county and city budget for sewer maintenance and repairs directly responsible for the work coming out of some of the hmm. people um, involved in that organization. Um, and the attention that we brought to a crumbling infrastructure in the early 2000s. And so um, you can't build can't continue to build on a shaky foundation. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, some of that is starting to play out now. Um, Wilmington, in my mind right now, is undergoing another amazing growth spurt, like another growth phase, um, similar to what I recognized that I saw. I was, I was a lot younger then, but what I recognized that I saw between 1998 and, you know, 2008, I think, you know, we're, we're in a similar trajectory currently in, in city development, county development. Hey, this is Jason Kanigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory compliance and gosh the end customer who would have thought about that right so you can sign up for this if you go to coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring the mission we're on then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com MSB and join us on the mission to make space boring. Now back to the interview. The but the chamber was fantastic. Um, yeah. You know, I think... You know, we got to host a major um, golf tournament here, which brought a lot of, um, inter, you know, international attention to the city and to the area. Um, I think that one of the nice things that I saw for the first time in, in my adult life living here is that uh, the 
surrounding counties um, kind of all banded together under a singular effort. And I thought that was pretty fantastic. And, you know, work together to begin to tell our story on a, um, you know, in a more um, scalable way. I think that the Wilmington story might get lost out there in translation, especially when you look at, you know, things like business development or um, company recruitment. You know, what kind of story are we telling about Southeastern North Carolina and um, what kind of story should we be talking about for Southeastern North Carolina? You know, I think I think I have my own personal ideas, but I think as a community and as a multiple county effort, I think that, you know, a lot of people need to come together around the table a lot more often than what they do to have that conversation. Hmm. Well, I'm curious what that story is for you. Tell us about that. You know, I think I think that um, Wilmington is uniquely poised with a lot of natural resources, the Atlantic Ocean, mm-hmm. Cape Fear River, um, you know, Brunswick River, News River, you know, all the all the tributaries and mm-hmm. all the coastal um, lands that we have here. And I think that there is a um, desire for people to have this work life um, balance. But I think that people who are running companies understand that it's really hard to attract and maintain and retain really good talent. And I think if you can talk about the story of how you can bring, you know, clean um, industry, clean technology, clean business to southeastern North Carolina and um, start to build those um, market segments that people are going to start to cluster around. I think Mm -hmm. that's the story that we need to start telling with a focus on um, sustainability and environmental sustainability, economic sustainability, those types of things. I think we're pretty progressive here in Southeastern North Carolina in the Wilmington area. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it gets a little bit more conservative politically as you move outside of the city limits. And so, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of conversations that need to happen for those um, kind of, you know, big initiatives to kind of gain traction across uh, multiple player bases. Hmm. So, but it could be an exciting time that we're getting into. Oh, I think, yeah. I think so. I mean, yeah. you know, just look at Wilmington, look at the population explosion in the mm-hmm. last, you know, three years. It's been unbelievable. Right. Yeah. That traffic <laughs> up and down the streets. I mean, Boy, it is it has changed a lot. So you founded your consultancy, See Creatively, about a year ago. What's the mission for the consultancy and who's your ideal client? Where do you want to take them from and to? Yeah, so um, I, I formed my consultancy because I started working with a client. Um, you know, I like to work with people who are digitally transforming their business, um, but also have a connection to a larger industry. I, I personally think that entrepreneurship is really successful when there is an identified need from a larger corporate entity that potentially will be your exit plan. Um, and this organization that I've been working with, um, fantastic group of people, solid business, um, have been a services-based business for some time, but have collected a lot of data over a period of time hmm. and allowing them to actually operationalize and process <laughs> their um, kind of go-to-market um, ability that they currently have through a services-based business. Um, to do that in an electronic platform has been very helpful for their organization, but also recognize that, hey, it develops a whole nother company and a whole nother um, bit of scalability that we didn't realize that we had. We don't now necessarily need to grow through people. We can grow through this um, intellectual asset that we've created and this technology asset that we created. And, um, you know, it's got multiple buyer sets into it. And so um, I like to look for companies like that that um, are really excited about, um, you know, opening themselves up to uh, 
re-looking at their process that actually have a clearly articulated vision for where they want to go and um, are able to um, make the investment that it takes to kind of build these things and then um, you know leverage that new technology or asset into potentially a, a growing scaling company or into a sale uh, into a larger organization i think and, and that's what i like to do um, i still like to work with the smaller startups i think a lot of startups just don't even know how to um, have that conversation how to brand or market themselves or mm. Um, how to raise money or capital or even what the process of starting a company is. I think mm. that's always really interesting. Um, I like to do a lot. Like I, I have to really, really like the business to want to do that work with, with them at that early, early stage. Um, you know, it becomes down to a personal um, relationship at that point in time. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, I, I look at it, um, my consultancy, which is C creatively, my initials actually spell S E A. So, um, so, so one of those things my dad did for me when I, <laughs> he named me, um, so, uh, but you know, it's, it's kind of a play on words, you know, I want people to see their process creatively, um, bring a different perspective into it. Um, organizational change is hard, you know, it's mm -hmm. super hard. Um, and to commit to it over the long haul, um, the companies that do it and commit to it are, um, they reap the rewards over a period of time. Um, they don't necessarily see uh, the ROI in terms of, you know, bookings or revenue in the first three, four years. Uh, but, you know, the learnings, the innovation accounting that I like to talk about, and those things can teach a lot of things, not only about your startup business, but also can shine and focus areas on your actual business that's on your, you know, I, I don't want to call it your cash cow, but that, you know, that section of your business that generates all your revenue that allows you to do these experimental things. Sometimes when you start to start up another company or a product line inside your company, you start to see these places where you might've been doing things the same way for a really long period of time. And this process allows you to refocus and say, Oh, is that really working for us anymore? And what are the positive and negatives if we try something else here? How do we measure that? How do we incrementally move these um, ideas into a small subsection of my business so I don't disrupt my entire cash flow um, process? Or, you know, how do I start to ingrain these uh, skill sets and mindsets into the, uh, the corporate population as a whole so that everybody starts thinking like, oh, well, just because it's been done this way doesn't mean we should have to go forward and do it that way. Um, it takes a really good psychologically safe culture to accept those types of things and to um, actually leverage them and capitalize on them. Cool. Yeah, a process improvement is a big part of what we do and what you say there about being willing to look at a process and go, look, just because we've done it this way until now doesn't mean that we need to keep doing it uh, that way going forward or that it's the best way. And that may sound simple or straightforward to listeners and viewers, but out there in the real world, that's usually how it happens. Inertia just keeps rolling. And so it's, it's great that you're out there helping uh, businesses that you believe in to make that change. Now, I this got to think about it. you got to think about it also from like, you know, if you're if you're a CEO and mm -hmm. you've taken investment money, you've got shareholders that you have mm -hmm. to answer to. Or if you're a publicly traded company, you know, the, the world is your shareholder. Right. So like mm -hmm. you have to you have to answer to those people all the time. And it can be really challenging to balance that, like need to increase shareholder revenue. Mm -hmm. I got to continue to grow my bookings if I want to go for my next round of funding or whatever it is. Right. 
that, you know, you don't want to like totally disrupt that piece of your business, but mm -hmm. like, you know, if you, if you keep going down that process and you don't ever change, you're going to end up being the next Xerox or Polaroid or right. whatever it is that went out of business or, you know, blockbuster video or whatever it is. So. Right. We see this a lot where, um, companies with that shareholder requirement, uh, they, in the short term say that they're going to commit to some sort of, uh, evolutionary process. And, uh, as soon as those quarterly revenue targets get close, they just drop everything. It's like they drop their spear and shield and start running and discounting their pricing so that they can move enough units so that they can hit those targets. And then they go, whew. Yeah. But then without that commitment, you know, they're going to stay the same and shrink and shrink and shrink, like you say. So what, yeah, been, absolutely. what has been your experience? This, this podcast, when I started it, 90 seven episodes ago as of today uh it was about the unexpected challenges of scaling businesses and i've since uh focused on space as well space mm -hmm. companies and that but uh, just in general everything that i say and look at and talk about applies to any kind of business because all businesses are the same at, at their yep. at their core what have you found that is the biggest challenge about scaling these, these small businesses. I see a lot of lifestyle type businesses in Wilmington where the founders, it's a sole proprietorship probably, and they don't want to scale. And then you get a few usually tech-based companies that want to do something, but they don't know how. And I think that's more what we want to talk about. And then at the, mm. and then there's the skyscraper level, you know, PPDs of that, that have done it already. And they, they have almost, they have that cursive knowledge. So they've forgotten what it's like to be that small. I think for yeah, stuff. for sure. What is what has been the biggest challenge to scaling that you've seen? I think it's um, actually finding your true customer and mm. understanding what that customer's pain really is. I mean, anybody can create an app today. I mean, mm -hmm. you can go out and you know it's cheap fifteen yeah. twenty five thousand dollars and build an app. You know, that's a lot of money to a lot of people, but like in the grand scheme of building right. a business, that's the cheap part. Um, but then like really understanding the customer and understanding because, you know, once you build that app, you got to sell it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then that's the piece that really like and, and unless you know who you're trying to sell to and you understand what their what their true need is, um, mm -hmm. you know, it could be like, you know, that's your marketing messaging. That is your, um, who you're targeting for a persona. That, that that's who you're trying to convince to buy your product over a period of time. And, um, you know, and, and certainly I'd like to think that people all make decisions logically based. Like I, I like wish I'd made all my decisions logically based, but it's really kind of like when somebody makes a purchasing decision, there's a lot of an emotional, um, component to that. Mm -hmm. So, understanding the psychology of what's going on in that um, person's world or that business's world that that problem is that they're trying to solve you know it there's there's the factual based side here and then there's the emotional based side here and being able to understand your customer from both levels i think that's where a lot of that's where a lot of ic startups start to falter and fail because they get so in love with the product and the idea that they created that they're not listening to what the customer is saying to them. Hmm. And then they end up like not getting the sales. And then, so therefore they don't see the revenue, their cost of acquisition, a customer goes way up through the roof. And then when they go out to try to, cause they're running out of runway. Right. So when they go out and they start running out of runway, 
and they have these high costs of customer acquisition and not a lot of like revenue. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, trying to close that gap with raising funds, you know, it's, it, it's all interrelated. And so when that happens, then all of a sudden they're unable to raise any more money and then they kind of falter and they either go back to a lifestyle business or they, you know, or they, you know, fold up shop and try something else. And so I think that's really the number one thing that I see um, nine times out of 10. Okay. Being able to identify that ideal customer and realize it's not just everybody and find those pain points. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, you could look at the market, right? You have your total addressable market and everybody always comes out with these. It's a $4.2 billion marketplace, right? But the serviceable addressable market might only be, you know, you know, $400 million. And then how many of that 400 million can you actually penetrate in Mm -hmm. as a company? So are you looking at like, you know, 5% 5% of that $400 million market. So that's a realistic revenue target. That's a realistic. And what does that 5% of that $400 million market actually look like that so that you can go out and communicate with those people and, and, and identify them and bring them into your sphere. Mm-hmm. And that does have a cost associated with it. Totally. <laughs> Being able to go get those folks. So the, the role that you're in now, there's some big data machine learning. Um, <laughs> I don't know how much you personally have gotten involved with that, uh, but I am, I am curious about how, what you believe or what you see about machine learning and affecting the delivery of healthcare services. Has, mm-hmm. What has happened in the last few years lagged behind or exceeded expectations? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I don't know how much of the expectation I had on what big data would play in the healthcare market. Um, I think that it's really a nuanced um, marketplace because, you know, you have all these electronic medical records that are sitting out there. They're all proprietary, right? And then you have the government saying that they got to kind of talk to each other. So you have these like, you know, um, interfaces where they're trying to get to this idea of interoperability but Mm -hmm. do the electronic medical records really want to does the epic really want to be interoperable with the cerner with the e-clinical works or what have you right and so now all of a sudden they're kind of fighting for their share of the pie Mm -hmm. um and so where do you go to get some of that data and um you know i think that when i think about um what i care about you know, I personally don't care what happens to my electronic goal, my electronic personal health information, my EPHI. Um, if somebody is going to use it and use it for good and make my life better, I'm okay with that. Now, if they're going to use it for something that's like nefarious and, <laughs> you know, create an alternative identity for me, I don't want that. But if I get into a car accident and I happen to be in Wisconsin, right? I want them to be able to immediately identify who I am and know all my allergies and all that kind of stuff about me. And we don't live in a society yet that that's even capable. And we have a lot of people out there all like vying to be the first person that can do that and make that proprietary. And so I think that there's a little bit of a, um, you know, there's a little bit of a challenge between like free commerce, you know, the capitalistic society that our um, economic engine is built upon. And then like, you know, the greater good of like people's health and wellness and like where do the two kind of equilibrium out and balance out. And it's been really interesting for me to kind of watch that play back and forth in the marketplace. 
Um, certainly there's big players like Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway. And then, you know, Apple now is like starting to get into the electronic medical record um, business with the iPhone and like the Apple health um, app. And, you know, it, it just is really interesting to me. So where I see it coming is, you know, every organization is generating a big amount of data. And I think that data really can be moved and um, used in the right way by running like analytics or machine learning, whatever you want to call it, right? It's, it's basically, hey, we have all this data, we've normalized it in some way that we can actually relate it back and forth to each other. And now what are the trends coming out of it? And can I get progressively better at identifying those trends quicker and quicker and quicker? So that, you know, somebody who is showing these three symptoms, I can basically get down to the root cause of it faster and be able to provide them better health care because of that. And that's really what it's about for me. Um, so I think the reason that I do what I do now is because I see the power that it's moving in that direction. Um, I see us moving from a fee-for-service based healthcare system where, you know, I get a cut and then it's like, you know, how much did it cost to irrigate it? How much did it cost to be admitted in the ER? How much did each suture cost, right? Hmm. To a value-based care. Did I not get an infection? Did I heal properly? Did I not have to come back to the hospital? Right, that, that value-based that I feel like a good, like I was well taken care of in the healthcare process. Um, you know, and then I think, you know, as we move into that value-based care, I think it's gonna be more and more important to track data over long periods of time amongst different um, care provider units. So from the you know, ambulatory into the acute and then into the post-acute and then into the home health type of side. And um, what I do now allows me like visibility into all those market segments and then with the um, layer of the payer above it. So like what's all the data that the payers have? How do we like start to look at trends and population trends of that and start to provide products and services that actually help a physician identify somebody in their practice that maybe needs a little bit more help, that maybe needs a little bit more care and things of that nature. And so, you know, that, that's what gets me really excited about what I do today. You can't afford to be second best. You need to be first, and that requires speed. Now, if you're thinking that growth is supposed to be slow and steady, frankly, the way I was taught back in the 90s in the operations management and business administration programs, you are too slow. We have to adapt. And in space, it's no different than anywhere else. People like to think they're special in space, and it is fun, all the stuff we get to work on, but business is business. The fundamentals nowadays are conservative growth is not good. You need to run as fast as you can and risk outstripping your supply lines, which means in our world, using up the capital that we've got. That's a risk. But there is no prize for second place. There certainly is no prize for third. If you want to scale operationally fast, come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. We are the process experts for scaling fast. Now back to the interview. As soon as I hear about folks uh, fighting for a piece of the pie, a bigger piece of the pie, I start to get nervous because I've seen that in so many places uh, in, in the past, particularly like well outside healthcare even. It can be in business sure. and municipalities, wherever. Um, if they can work together, they can actually expand the size of the pie. But the problem is people get territorial. And the biggest thing that I've seen up close in the Wilmington area is the, you know, we've all, we've, we've got HIPAA and the, and the desire to anonymize data and that, but people 
don't want to share data outside of their organizations. That's what I've seen. There's, there's a trust factor there. And even when they do trust you and know you, it still can be difficult to get them to say yes. Yep. What's your, what's your, <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, okay, simple echoing. Is there anything that you've seen that can be done to, to make that smoother or make people uh, happier about the idea? Because you I definitely want them to share. I think it's where you get the data from. I think like, you know, if you go into and you try to connect to every electronic medical record system from each practice to every hospital, you'd never get there. But there's, you know, I think if you start to look at like a commonality of data where it's coming across, I think, and you look at it at a larger level, like a much, much like, like 120,000 foot level, I think all of a sudden you start to identify trends and then you can start to put resources. Like, let's face it, you know, there's a growing population of people that are obese, which leads to diabetes, right? And so what are the things, that, and, and, and certainly the insurance companies see that and they say, oh my God, you know, it's so expensive to care for somebody long-term on diabetes. Insulin's expensive, the doctor's visits are expensive. All of a sudden now they got to go in and get feed exams. All oh, I'm paying for all that now, right? And then, you know, God forbid, should their kidney function go, now all of a sudden they're paying for dialysis for, you know, five to 10 years, right? That's, that's not cheap. And so, you know, all of a sudden, if the, if, the, if the people who are driving the process say, oh, well, you know, instead of paying, you know, to be a reactive healthcare system, we start to be proactive and start to put our money towards wellness efforts. And we start to implement things like, you know, um, activity-based learning and education type of activities, you know, where people are getting up and walking and doing this kind of activity or like diet, like, you know, and flooding the area with, um, you know, this is, you know, we realize you're on a low income, but you know what? McDonald's is a lot more expensive than a package of collard greens and, you know, you know, and some, and some, you know, whatever it is that you're eating, right? You can make good, healthy, green food and, and, and natural food and be actually cheaper than you were if you were to eat this and start to subsidize programming like that hmm. on the front end because now all of a sudden you're breaking that cycle and you're starting like, it, it's, a, it's a proactive wellness model versus a reactive wellness model. And I think ultimately what I'd like to see is the data get to the point where we can start to isolate what these things are and start to put in that programming to be able to change that that cycle in a different way. Okay. That's my pioneer. Boy, that's, that is very interesting. And, and creating a value instead of the cost accounting, like you were talking about, uh, but a preventative value of, okay, this guy didn't get diabetes and that saved us the potential yeah. of having to spend this enormous amount uh, over mean, the next 10 you, years like, or something. Yeah, you would never you would never erase the hundred percent of the incidents, but even right. like say you know seventy percent of people in this community are obese, or um, you know, and out of that seventy percent, another like fifty percent develop diabetes. If you could just knock that number down fifteen percent, hmm. think about the amounts amounts of savings that you would have, um, you know, from a from a payer's perspective. So. All right. Uh, Sean, how can people get a hold of you if, they, if they're in the area and they're like, hey, I like what I'm hearing. I want to talk to this guy. Where should they go? What well, should they do? <laughs> well, I'm always on LinkedIn, so I'm there. So um, my, my LinkedIn is just my name, Sean E. Allen. Um, you know, I am uh, reachable through the Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship at UNC mm -hmm. Wilmington. I do serve on a um, mentor board there. Um, my time is pretty limited, so 
but I do uh, try to get into uh, meetings for companies that I think have really great potential and I like to see that kind of be successful. Um, you know, I am out and about, so if the surf is good, you probably catch me over at Masonboro Island or on the south end of Rachel Beach at some point. Um, so if you see me on the street, just say hello. I'm always happy to stop and have a good conversation. And then um, last but not least, uh, you know, I'm also on all of the social medias that are out there, the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Instagrams. So there you go. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here today, Sean, and talking to us about uh, business development and innovation in southeastern North Carolina. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.